0: Do you have the driving skill, the bravery, and the advanced knowledge of physics and engineering required to win the race? Well, let's find out with Indianapolis 500, the simulation, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Hello everyone and welcome to episode 56 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am Joe, your host, here to talk to you about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh recording a little little odd this week. It's uh it's Monday morning. I'm uh, I'm about to to take off on a business trip and um I wanted to sneak the show out while I still had all my my gear. Worst case I could have done it over out of the hotel room or something with uh with some crappier equipment, but I had some time this morning before, uh, before I left. So I figured I'd, uh, I'd eke the thing out. So, um, let's get it done. Weather's nice. It's beautiful. It's, uh, we're into September now and, uh, the heat is starting to go away, which I guess is bad and good in, in, <laughs> in some ways, but enough about the weather report. Let's get to emails. So, uh, the response to the last show on, uh, on Sierra and the history of Sierra and the news, recent news about Sierra was, uh, was really good i enjoyed doing it a lot and we got uh got some great responses so to that end i got quite a few emails uh, after the fact and uh firstly though two messages that were actually supposed to be in the last show got got filtered into my spam filter so i'm gonna have to make a uh, make a point of of looking into there and and make sure making sure no one's emails got kind of fell into that bucket so first one of the emails i missed is from Tom, and Tom writes, Hi Joe, just responding to your request for comments on the Sierra revival. I'm optimistic for a few reasons. First of all, Sierra holds a very special place in my heart. I believe the first computer game I ever played was King's Quest. I was about seven years old at the time, and I probably learned to read from playing that and then every other Quest game Sierra released. I remember eagerly awaiting each new Quest game and each new issue of Interaction Magazine, the Sierra print newsletter, When my wife and I had our second child, we wound up naming him Graham. He wasn't really named after King Graham from the King's Quest games, but the name did resonate with me for that reason. Looking to the future, I'm hopeful for the brand for a few reasons. Obviously, I'm in favor of bringing back the old Quest series games in modern form. The fact that Activision has been in touch with the Williams family, the founders of Sierra, seems to be a good sign that they care about these older titles. Adventure games have been doing okay on Kickstarter, and I think Activision could probably provide a bit more resources than some of those groups have been able to raise, while still being able to make enough money to keep development financially viable. I have some friends at Activision, and the heavy focus on AAA development is obvious, Partnering with some indie studios to create niche or mid-tier games seems like it could be a good thing for the company and its shareholders. For anyone interested in the classic Sierra stuff, there are some great resources at sierrachest.com, sierrahelp.com, and sierragamers.com. Sierra Chest and Sierra Gamers also have active Facebook groups. Sierra Chest has a great historical archive of the game manuals, box art, and even scans of interaction and videos from their 1988-1989 video catalog which I think I still have sitting on a shelf in my parents' house. There's also some great fan communities around the Space Quest games at SpaceQuest.net and Sarian.net. Well, thanks so much, Tom. And uh, I know I definitely spend a lot of time over at uh, SpaceQuest.net. And whenever I uh, I cover Sierra games, definitely those uh, Sierra chests, Sierra Help, especially. I th- believe that's the one where they kind of put out patches and, and and things like that for. Uh, You know, I know there's like a bunch of Space Quest installers that take the collections and add all the missing stuff and things like that. So, yeah, there's always a lot of great Sierra resources online, great Sierra communities that have been going pretty strong, definitely stronger as of late. But uh, there there was a bit of a lull for a time, but uh, definitely a lot of Sierra communities out there and um, glad for your thoughts. Next, in the missing emails from the Abyss, uh, we have an email from Michael. He writes, Hi, Joe. Love the show. Makes for a great listen on my commute. I'm only sad that I've exhausted the archive and now have to wait in line for everyone else for the next show. I have a fiddly technical detail to call out from your Pirates show, oh, so we're going back to now. Uh, you mentioned bootloaders were dif- were difficult because you had to write your own drivers for disk, video, sound, etc. It's true that DOS helped out with these disks and handled file system stuff, but DOS had no support for video and sound card interaction. For those devices, you had to write your own driver code whether you were using DOS or not. It really was just a disk operating system. Anyway, looking forward to my next nostalgia fix. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Michael. And you know, it's funny because I I knew that. And I don't know why I didn't say it on the show, but uh, but you are you are absolutely uh, correct. That's why when you go and look in you know, go and look in, in your in your King's Quest 5 folder or whatever or your Wing Commander folder, and you'll see like Sound drive and MT32.drive and AdLib.drv or whatever so yeah everyone had to write their own drivers and um not sure if that was more complicated for bootloaders or not i assume it was probably the same but yeah the uh the whole point with bootloaders was that they didn't necessarily use standard file systems so uh you know a bit better for copy protection and things like that so those were the two that went missing now we have some messages that came in after the fact as reactions to the uh the sierra show some people that wanted to get in uh get in their thoughts. So Brian writes, hey Joe, another good show. Do you think Activision's relaunching of Sierra uh, may be an attempt to reinvigorate and bring back PC gaming as we remember it? I ask this for a few reasons. First of all, retro gaming is really catching on right now with regards to old consoles, but it hasn't really hit with old PC games. Secondly, a company named Hyperkin that makes the Retron game consoles that can play NES, SNES, Genesis, and other old carts has been announcing at various gaming shows that it is developing DOS, a DOSBox-based DOS <laughs> platform that can be hooked up to a TV and old PC games can be played on it. So I'm just wondering if the Return of Sierra, Return of King's Quest, lol, may be the vanguard of a PC gaming revival. What are your thoughts? Once again, love the show. Well, Brian, honestly, I think what this really is is I think there there already is, to some degree, a, a retro PC gaming revival, especially if you go and... It's been around for a long time if you go and look at mobile. Like, look at how many mobile and even indie PC kind of 8-bit-looking games. Not necessarily recreations of old stuff, but, you know, stuff that's done in chiptunes with 8-bit-looking graphics or 16-bit-looking uh, graphics. And, frankly, I think this is Activision... Looking at all these Kickstarters for things like, you know, the two guys from Andromeda's Space Venture, Quest for Infamy, the new Leisure Suit Larry that came out, and, uh, you know, saying, hey, you know, there's something we can do here, because people seem to want these old games, and we have all this old IP, and we have this old name that all these people will look at, and uh, they'll buy these games, and they'll give us money, and... uh, We'll be able to pay out dividends to our shareholders, and uh, by those definitions, become a more successful company. So, frankly, I think it all comes down to money. At the end of the day, I don't think it's it's starting a PC a retro PC gaming revolution. I think it's continuing the PC gaming, uh, PC retro gaming revolution that that already began. All right. So next, uh, we have email from friend of the show BJ, and BJ writes: sigh, ellipsis, three three dots. I, unlike many of you fellow blockers, have never played a proper Sierra adventure game. Oh, sure, I played Mixed Up Mother Goose from Sierra, but that doesn't really count now, does it? Well, BJ, I think it does, because, well, it's a Sierra game. Uh, no. What I'm wondering about with the recent Sierra news is some of the more interesting titles from Dynamics and papyrus which uh, we're going to be talking about today uh games like star siege tribes and tribes 2 from dynamics along with nascar racing games that papyrus or papyrus uh, i'm going to be doing that a lot today uh and sierra put out in the late 90s early 2000s grand prix legends and Indy 500 all games that have a veritable stew of rights issues especially with the tribes license and uh that's before i get to some of the most interesting games So am I excited for Sierra's comeback? Sort of. I'm scared that Activision Blizzard will focus solely on either old Sierra IPs that they know they hold the rights to, indie games that really have nothing to do with the old Sierra, but uh, in the name on the box only, or a little bit of both. But hey, that Mondo, Skylanders, and Call of Duty money has to be reinvested somewhere, I guess. Also, this doesn't bode well for uh, the Infocom catalog of text-based adventure games unless ActiBlizz decides to throw that into the mix as well. Oh, well, sorry to be so negative, but I don't like what I'm seeing here. Not yet. Anyways, see you on the Facebook page. BJ. Well, you know, BJ, I I hope that that we do start to see things like, uh, I do remember Star Siege and even Earth Siege, one of my favorite big robot games. And uh, yeah, definitely like The, uh, a lot of the dynamics flight sims, like you said, the whole Red Baron, Aces the Pacific, that kind of, uh, that kind of situation over there. I mean, there, there's a lot of games here. There's a lot of IPs. I don't know who, if they hold, still hold all of them. They may have spun some off. They might have lost some over the years, but, um, you know, I hope they're, they're thinking of putting everything on the table and, you know, not necessarily saying, oh, we're going to give you all a big dumping of stuff, but I think that if they can find, or even if they are approached by an indie dev that shows them something compelling that shows them hey this could be a good game using one of these IPs I don't see why they would automatically shut the door on on putting it out I mean they're 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 throwing they're leaving money on the table why would a company do that so you could be negative I mean there's no problem with that I have heard some people not not love this idea cuz you know they think it might be just Again, a money making thing and, and messing up the brand and messing up our childhoods and, and all that stuff. But, you know, I like to be hopeful about these things. And I hope that that Activision is approaching this from a point of view of, well, we want to make good games. And, and I think by making good games is the way that they're going to make good money. So thanks for that. Next, nice long one from Elima. Elima writes. Hello, Joe. I can't believe I actually sent my email in last week without my thoughts and comments on the Sierra revival. I feel like such an idiot, but I'll just go ahead and blame chronic sleep deprivation and an increased workload. Like you and most of the UMB listeners, Sierra had a big, big impact on my gaming history and by uh, extension, my childhood. I can still remember with perfect clarity that day when my dad came home with two big game boxes, King's Quest, Quest for the Crown and King's Quest for the Perils of Rosella. It must have I must have been about seven, and yet I can still see the box art, Graham as a knight kneeling before his king for the first one, and the other, Rosella, her hair flowing in the wind, riding a pure white unicorn, and fending off the attacks of Lolot's henchmen. I have very fond memories of my sister and I trying to figure out how to get through those games without dying. Well, without dying too often, of course. Those games also taught me how to type, not to mention spell, the dim lighting in the KQ, f- in the in uh, the N and KQ4 weren't the only problem. We must have tried ten different spellings for the word chasm, and uh, they drilled into me the famous adventure game dictum: take anything that isn't nailed down. After those, the rest of the King's Quest series followed. But uh, we also played the, Le- the Leisure Suit Larry series, the Police Quests, Load Runner, Thorns Passage, Mixed Up Mother Goose, Manhunter, Phantasmagoria, the Laura Bow series. Great suggestion from another listener. Please cover those. Uh, Goblins, the Shivers series, the Caesar games, Pharaoh. There are just so many. We even got that hefty King's Quest compendium, which I'd bring with me to school and read on the bus. I also received a few issues of the in-house magazine Interaction and dreamed of buying and playing games like Betrayal of Lighthouse, and Rama. My first MMO was Sierra's The Realm, and I played that way too much as a teen. Heck, I even resubscribed later in college in the 2000s. I've gone on long enough, feel free to edit, I kind of splurged back there since I missed writing in for the King's Quest show, but that's how important Sierra was and is to me. Like most of you, it shaped the person and gamer I am today. Uh, that sounds a bit corny, but it's true. So can you imagine when I heard the big news, I was a bit anxious. What did it mean? The golden age of point-and-click adventure games seemed to have come and gone, and yet those games are still around. But what about Sierra could it really be resurrected in any case when the news hit i couldn't help but feel enthusiastic and excited since then i've tempered that outburst and am cautiously optimistic as i think i termed it on the facebook page perhaps there is hope for those uh, sierra games we all know and love and maybe they won't go all the way uh, all they won't all go the way of the dodo just yet for now i'm pretty hopeful and eager to see what comes of the sierra revival as you termed it In fact, I'd like to take this opportunity to add my plus one to the listener who mentioned and is working on a KQ4 fan remake. Fan remakes have kept these games alive up to this day, and I'm incredibly grateful for those. I'd never actually played KQ2 and KQ3 when they first came out, interestingly enough, but eventually did. The remakes, however, are vastly superior to the originals. I hope that's not blasphemy. Uh, The KQ3 remake by Infamous Adventures has great great sound and graphics, but uh, AGD AGD Interactive's KQ2 remake, King's Quest II Romancing the Stone, is absolutely amazing. Notice that little play on the original title, Romancing the Throne, uh, which itself is a play on Romancing the Stones, or Stone, but <laughs> uh, they took the original game and fleshed out the story, building up and expanding the original game masterfully. To this day, I recommend those fan remakes over the original material, and I'm definitely eagerly awaiting a KQ4 remake and going to play the Space Quest and Quest for Glory remakes one day. Curse that huge pile. Anyhow, that's enough for me. Feel free to edit my email because this one is pretty big. Nope, I don't edit, sorry. Uh, but honestly, couldn't give my thoughts on the revival without some context on how big Sierra was and is uh, and still is for me. Thanks for the extended memory UMB show on Sierra. Looking forward to indie 500. Take care, Emily slash Alima. Well, thanks, Alima. And, you know, I, I think it is important to... To show kind of like why, you know, why I put a spent an entire episode on that and why I'm spending frankly the first 15 minutes of this next show, you know, talking about your your guys' reaction to this is because it's it's big news because Sierra was at the time, Sierra was the one of the biggest, probably the biggest, actually it was the biggest, uh, you know, game developer and publisher at the time of you know the time that I focus on and and yeah most of us that that lived in that time and enjoy games in that time have a very strong connection to that company so so we're reasonably concerned and excited that it may be coming back in in some form or another so thank you very much for for that and, and keep on sending stuff and finally a really cool message from Parker and Parker writes hey Joe and all my fellow blockers I've been listening to your show for a while and have really enjoyed it. I'm only 12, so I haven't played most of the game you ta- games you talk about. The only games I have experienced about are XCOM UFO Defense, XCOM Enemy Unknown, Transport Tycoon, and SimCity 2013. I've discovered many good games from your podcast, including Thief and Command & Conquer. I just wanted to say you've been doing a really good job on the podcast and think the episode about the Sierra arrival is interesting. I hope to be able to see games... Like the ones you and many blockers enjoyed in your childhoods, my mom and I enjoy listening to your podcast in the car, and can't wait to see what you have in store for us all. Thanks for doing such a great job, Parker. Well, thank you, Parker, and 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 I'm pleased. I'm very pleased. I was actually I was very surprised to find out you know I have a listener who's who's 12 because obviously being 12 years old, um, Parker didn't play as he said many of the games I talk about because he wasn't even close to being born yet, and uh, and I think that's really 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 cool i think it's cool that that younger people from from today i guess who are who grew up with more let's call them visually appealing games games that have a much more modern aesthetic games that have a much more modern gameplay style uh, you know can can go back and enjoy older games you know just like it would it would be like me going back and you know playing zork which was a bit before my time and uh you know stuff on on the atari and and you know text based adventures and, and and other things like that i can appreciate them but they're they're definitely not from my time so so thanks so much parker that's really cool and hey if there's any other you know younger listeners kind of uh pre-teens early teens people who definitely weren't around when uh when these games came out or were just very young so they couldn't play them drop me a line i, I think i think it's really cool to hear you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for over Okay, so that was a lot of email, but uh, again, like I said, I think kind of important to get everyone's uh, everyone's views on things, but now we're on to this week's game, one that you guys have been patiently waiting for me to cover for at least a month now, and uh, this week, further to that, we are discussing Indianapolis 500, The Simulation. So, this standalone game uh, was developed by a Papyrus Design Group, Now I'm going to say Papyrus. Uh, and published by our friends (laughs) at Electronic Arts. It released in the year 1989. So, genre time. So, despite the fact that uh, I've done this show 55 times before, uh, I've come again across a genre that we've not really touched. Indianapolis 500 is a racing sim. So, simulations are definitely a genre we've touched on before, as uh, I was a pretty big fan of them. However, despite covering vehicle sims, space sims, flight sims, business sims, city building sims, and any other thing you can think of, uh, I have yet to touch on a racing sim, which is odd, as uh, when I was younger, I was, I was very much into, uh, into NASCAR, F1, uh, Rally, or WRC, and, and all that stuff. So, uh, what's a racing sim, then? Well, you can probably figure this out, but a racing sim is uh, any computer program, game or otherwise, uh, that attempts to simulate the conditions and situations found in auto racing, competitive or non-competitive, if there's such a thing as non-competitive auto racing. But anyways, uh, this can range from um, illegal street racing to amateur level organized races, up to the very professional and very technologically cutting edge world of uh, F1 racing and everything else in between. To varying degrees, racing sims try to reproduce the physics of racing. Uh, This can uh, come in the form of a deep and studied simulation of a single car or a single car type, or offer the ability to drive a multitude of different cars. Uh, While the more arcade style racers offer little in the way of uh, customization and realism, the more realistic simulations can get very, very technical, letting you tweak many of the settings of your car and in some cases upgrade various parts. Most racing sims allow you to take a driver through uh, some form of career mode, driving in a series of linked races to take place in final standings, or you know, through a season, or through multiple seasons, or, or things like that. Story time. So as Indianapolis 500, the simulation, is in fact a true simulation, it doesn't really have any concept of story, character development, or anything like that. Uh, like many of the simulators we've encountered, it dispenses with this cladding and focuses on the pure physics of racing. However, you are given a bit of framework to hang your own story on. Now, so you can tell a lot from a name in some cases, and this one is most assuredly included. Uh, Indianapolis 500, the simulation, is a simulation of one race and one race only. The famous Indianapolis 500, which is held every year on or about Memorial Day, I think in the past couple the past like 10, 20 years, it's always been held on the Sunday closest to U.S. Memorial Day. Uh, this race is 500 miles long, which consists of 200 laps around the 2.5 mile oval course located at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Speedway, Indiana, which is a suburb of the city of Indianapolis. The first Indy 500 was held on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1911. That's what was originally known as the International 500 Mile Sweepstakes Race. However, uh, you know, the name has changed throughout the years and its colloquial name, it was the one that stuck, that everyone kind of knows about the Indianapolis 500 or the Indy 500. Now, when I say this is a simulation of only a single race, I mean that literally. This is not a simulation of the evolution of cars throughout the long history of the Indy 500 though, now that I think about it, that might actually be a pretty cool idea. I should check and see if someone's done that. Um, What it is, is a very detailed simulation of the 1989 Indianapolis 500, from cars and technology to drivers, and in fact, the exact and fixed starting grid from that race. There's one difference and one difference only. Your car sporting the number 17 replaces the number 29 car of Rich Vogler, who qualified in 33rd place that year. What does this mean? Well, it means that if you're in his place, you're starting last. So from here on, your story, your motivations, and everything else are up to you, if in fact you care about them at all. Otherwise, let's just go drive. You are listening to the Upper Henry Block Podcast. Okay, so it's gameplay time. Upon starting the game, uh, you're presented with the logo of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and credits. It then breaks into a very cool and very cinematic replay of an Indy 500 race. At least for me, when you first log into the game, or boot up the game, whatever you want to call it, this replay was actually very impressive. Cameras change, they follow the cars, and they feel like they have actual humans controlling them. You know, there's there's overcorrection and a bit of camera shake... So even here, in this kind of cinematic piece, we start to see the attention to to detail that's given to to somewhat trivial things. So hitting the escape button brings up the game's menu. Uh, From here, you have the ability to select your game mode, choose a team, which by extension chooses the color and initial setup and some capabilities of your car. Uh, You can manage your car configuration saves or fiddle with the game's few, uh, few settings. So let's throw, go through these game modes in order. Firstly, we have practice mode. Now this is a sort of free racing mode where, uh, where you can adjust and tweak your car settings on the fly. Uh, this is both a great way to first learn how the different car settings affect your car's performance, and uh, also a way to fine tune your car for both the highest performance and to best suit your driving style. So in practice mode, you have the option of adjusting quite a few things on your car. You can control how much fuel will be put, in, put into your car the next time you uh, you pit. The more fuel you carry, the longer, of course, you can race without putting into the pit. However, fuel is heavy. So the more you have, the slower you'll go. So you'll want to strike a balance between carrying enough fuel and not bogging down your car. And remember, in a 200-lap race, you'll likely have to pit for other reasons. So trying to figure out a good pit stop strategy is is key to uh, key to winning. You can also adjust the angle of your car's front and rear wings. Now, this affects downforce, or the force with which air rushing over the wings of your car presses your car into the ground. It's sort of like the opposite of the wing of an aircraft. Aircraft wings will produce lift, thereby making the plane go up. IndyCar, and in fact, any kind of race car or even non-race car wings are basically flipped-around versions of this, so instead of lifting the car off of the ground, they create downforce and press the car onto the ground. So again, downforce is a question of balance. The more downforce you generate, the more your car sticks to the ground. This vastly improves handling. However, increased downforce also causes the car to use more fuel because it's pressing harder onto the ground, it takes more engine power to push it forward. Less downforce, better fuel economy, worse handling. Now, in the same vein as downforce... You can also choose what kind of tire goes on your car. In fact, you can choose what kind of tire goes on each position of the four tires on your car. Harder tires last longer, but provide less grip. Softer tires are the opposite. Another tweak to your tires is known as stagger. Since the oval Indy track always requires cars to turn left, you could set up your car to take advantage of that fact. So stagger represents the difference in size in increments of 0.1 inches of your rear right tire versus your rear left tire. The larger your right tire is compared to your left will increase your performance in cornering. However, it will give you more problems handling in the long straightaways between the turns. You can also adjust tire pressure of each of your tires. Higher pressure will cause the temperature in the center of the tire to increase and lowering it will raise the temperature at the edges. This again has an effect on tire life. So just think of your tire as like a a bit of a balloon kind of a thing because it gets filled up with air. So the more air pressure you put in it, the more the center is gonna pop out and the less, the more it's gonna kind of bow inwards. Next, you can also adjust the shock absorbers on each tire. So making your shock stiffer makes the car more responsive, kind of more twitchy and uh, softer creates more of a lag in response. And now this really comes down to driver preference. Do you want the car to leap into a direction when you touch the wheel or do you want a little bit of play in your controls? Next, we've got the camber of the tires. Now camber is the angle that the tire sits at off of the vertical. When downforce is applied to to a car, and not just race cars, but this is any car in fact, if you go and look at your own car, the tires, the wheels will have a camber. So when downforce is applied, the car is pushed down and this will cause the tires to flare out a little bit, which adds increased wear to the inside of the tires. Now camber counteracts this tilting the tire to the inside of the car will increase the temperature and wear at the inside of the tire and tilting it to the outside will increase the temperature at the outside. I'm actually doing stuff with my hands now, which is funny because obviously this isn't a video podcast. You guys can't see what I'm doing. So uh, yeah, now I feel silly. Anyways, like all other settings, uh, the camber is adjustable for each tire since each of them experiences different stresses based on the position in the car. So it's actually very interesting because there's kind of a limited set of, of steering inputs that, uh, that are generally done in this race because, again, you're only turning left. You can really set up your car to be optimized for only turning left. So finally, for the settings that are uh, adjustable in practice mode, you have your gears, Now here, you don't get to set each gear individually, but you set more kind of like the range of your set of four gears. Higher gear settings increase your acceleration and use more fuel, but eventually do limit your top speed. Lower gears have much slower acceleration, better fuel economy, and higher top speed. However, if you're slowing down and speeding up a lot, you're going to lose precious time getting back up to speed with a lower gear set. So, in practice mode, you can adjust all of these settings to your heart's content and immediately see the difference in the car's performance. There's no limit to laps, and each lap is timed so you can compare different configurations. Also, there's no car damage in practice mode. So, if you hit the wall or you hit another car, you're just going to kind of spin out. Now, once you decide on a configuration, you can jump back to the main menu and save it in one of three car setting save slots. This setting will be used for the rest of your play session, and you can also load it uh, in later sessions. So now once you're kind of you're satisfied with the way your car is set up, you can enter the optional qualifying stage. If you skip the qualification and go directly to the race, you're gonna start in the default position that uh, the driver you're replacing started in last place. Now qualifying is a quick four laps around the track and uh, the average of your four lap times determines your starting position in the actual race. Unlike practice mode though, in qualifying you're only able to adjust the settings we just discussed if you enter the pit, and obviously entering the pit uh, affects your time. There are two settings that you can change in the car, and that's your level of turbo boost, which will obviously uh, affect your speed. So the more turbo boost you you apply, the faster your car is going to go, the more acceleration and top speed you're going to get. However, you're going to burn more fuel. The other thing is the roll bar, which adjusts. It's kind of like an on-the-fly shock absorber adjustment, so, you can make your roll bar stiffer or softer to kind of fine tune your, uh, your car setting as you're driving. But aside from those two things, you got to go into the pit to change everything else. You have controls for those on your steering wheel. So, now we get on to the actual race. Now, here we have four options. The first is a short 10 lap race, which has no damage and uh, no effect on yellow flags. So, like in practice mode, if you crash in this race, you're going to lose speed, you're going to spin out, and Uh, you're going to have to recover. This will lose you quite a few positions in the process, most likely. Uh, Also, in the event of a crash, a yellow caution flag will come out, but this has no effect on the rules of the race. All cars continue racing as normal. Now, in a 30-lap race, your car still takes no damage, but yellow flags do have an effect. So if there is a crash involving any car except your own for some reason, the yellow flag comes out and all cars are restricted to 90 miles per hour. Also, no passing is allowed. After about two to three laps, the crashed car or crashed cars are cleared from the course and green flag conditions resume, which means you can just start racing normally again. Now the big guys, the 60 and the full 200 laps are set to kind of full realism mode. Your car can be damaged and uh, you'll absolutely have to consider a pit stop strategy and uh, other cars can be retired from the race due to mechanical failures or damage. So if you rub up on another car or, God forbid, you hit the wall to, in, in kind of a non-catastrophic way, your tires are going to take damage in addition to their normal wear and tear. Now, with one or two damaged tires, you should be able to limp back to the pits for repairs. More than that, and it's actually going to be very difficult. You may just have to you know, concede the race. If you suffer extensive tire damage or you suffer extensive engine damage, your race is done. The 200-lap race is very long and very challenging, and as far as I could tell, many players don't have the time, patience, or skill to actually successfully complete one. At any point, you can watch a replay of the last 20 seconds of your drive from a variety of angles, including in-car, behind-the-car, track-view, TV camera, sky, and uh, a leader cam. It's kind of like a little uh, race PVR. It's not a full replay. It's only the last 20 seconds, and that's probably because of a memory, uh, memory restriction. Also, you have the option of choosing from three different base cars, the March Cosworth, the Lola Buick, and the Penske Chevrolet. Each car has a different color and a different base configuration and different levels of durability and the basic handling. However, any of the cars can be tweaked to be competitive. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. Let's take a look at some requirements. So, the original DOS version of Indy 500 had actually very modest requirements for the game that it is, even by the standards of 1989. To run it, you needed at least an 8088 or 8086 CPU, DOS 2.1, 384 kilobytes of RAM, and uh, a floppy drive of some type. And to control the game, you needed a keyboard or a joystick. Now, from a graphical perspective, this game supported everything. It ran in CGA, EGA, Tandy, or VGA graphics. I think even and you know, the weird ones like MCGA and all that stuff are in there too. At its best, it ran in 320 by 200 at 16 colors. Sound-wise, the game supports the PC speaker, AdLib, and MT-32. And the theme song was composed by Ron Hubbard. Hubbard was the first employee at EA America to be focused solely on sound and music and quickly became audio-technical director at EA, but not before he composed the music and designed the sounds for many EA titles, including Indianapolis 500 The Simulation. On top of music, the game featured MIDI-style engine sound, tire squealing, and crash sound effects. I won't deny it, the engine sounds a little bit irritating, but you know, for the time, it was well done. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast, time for So, dev story time. I know the uh, the tech focus was a bit short, but we're actually going to focus on uh, a couple of other technical aspects of the game here in the dev story. So, Indianapolis 500, the simulation was the first game developed by Papyrus Design Group. Papyrus was founded by two men, David Kamer and Omar Kudari. Qadari first discovered computers as a freshman at Stanford University. He soon wrote his first game for the Commodore PET, and he was hooked. He found himself staying up all night in the computer labs and sleeping through his classes during the day. (laughs) Aside from that, he'd uh, act on stage in the evening, and you know, so he was kind of pretty busy, sleeping during the day, acting in the evening, programming all night. Despite this, he says he somehow graduated with a a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Harvard University, so he's a We got an Ivy League boy here. He soon landed a job at Tom Snyder Productions writing educational computer games, and this is where he met another employee, David Kamer. Kamer was a great programmer in his own right, who also had sort of a thing for auto racing, which he traced back to the Christmas of 1972. He and his family were living in Rhodesia, I assume because of some parents' work situation, uh, his parents got him a Grand Prix-based slot car set, which he immediately fell in love with. Uh, To further his love of racing, upon their return to America, his family settled in Indianapolis, obviously the home of the Indy 500, and he spent those years dumping tons and tons of quarters into racing racing arcade games like uh, Atari's Pole Position. In addition to that, he claims he was also one of the first people in southern Indiana to own a, uh, a TRS-80. He, uh, he fell in love with computers and computer games, and one of his personal favorites was Sublogic's Flight Simulator, and uh, he spent tons and tons of time on that TRS-80 puttering around, making his own small games, trying to figure out how Flight Simulator's vector-based graphics were created, all kinds of things like that. So this love of computers was obviously what brought him to, uh, to to TSP, Tom Snyder Productions. However, his love of racing would not come into play just yet. So in 1986, EA had put out a print ad with the headline, Can a Computer Make You Cry? Which was sort of a manifesto defining the mission of, uh, of EA America as a company. If you go and read it, actually, I posted it in the Facebook group and on Twitter. It definitely comes across quite differently from the EA we know today, and uh, it may actually be a, worth a, a close look on a show one of these days, kind of analyzing uh, EA's manifesto from, from their inception. EA aside, they don't come into play just yet, uh, the manifesto inspired Omar to try and create what he called a storytelling game. So since TSP was a purveyor of educational games, he and Kemmer got together and produced their storytelling game, which was called the McGraw-Hill Mathematics Problem-Solving Courseware. <laughs> they, they also uh, proceeded to make a series of games published by Infocom called Infocomics, which were effectively stories which could be viewed from uh, different points of view. Now, Kadari uh, says that despite the, uh, the unimpressive name of their uh, math game, it was actually quite a good game. I don't know how well it sold, but uh, their Infocomics did sell better. So, with a few games under their belt, as uh, Tom Snyder Productions' employees, the two decided it might be time to venture off on their own. In 1987, they left their jobs to form Papyrus Design Group. They now needed a project. Kimmer really wanted to make his version of his favorite game, a Sublogic's Flight Simulator. However, many realistic flight simulators, including the one from Sublogic, already sort of existed. To get their game off the ground, they started to look around for a publisher. As it turns out, one of the first publishers they visited was EA, the company that had run the ad that so inspired uh, Kodari. They were looking for a developer to create a game based on the Indianapolis 500. After some discussion, Kamer decided that doing a realistic racing sim would be just as interesting as doing a flight simulator. As he put it, he would make a flight simulator on a racetrack. So he started to look more closely into the physics of auto racing, which basically involved lots of reading and a lot more math. Now, unlike flight, in an auto race, you're not 10,000 feet in the air, you're not far away from things, you know, there's roads and there's walls and there's other cars and there's incredible forces uh, acting on that car very quickly. So how do you model all these elements at the speed needed to simulate the action of a real Indy 500 race? So we're we're, in 1987 right now with probably a targeted release date of 1988, 1989. So we're looking at the majority of gamers with PCs and XTs, you know, 8088s and things like that, and uh, you know, 286s were kind of at the middle high end, and I think early 386s were just coming into the scene at the hot rod end of the spectrum, and all these machines had EGA graphics at best. So, a flight sim was considered to be high performance if, at this time, it could put out 8 to 10 frames per second. Now, there's no way that this would be enough to simulate a fast-paced racing experience, so Kamer targeted a steady 15 frames per second as his goal, In addition, to properly simulate the Indy 500, 33 cars had to be modeled and 32 of them had to be AI controlled by the CPU. So on top of this 15 FPS, uh, all this AI control was a pretty tall order even for a 286 at the time. To get around this, or to, to, to handle this, the whole game was coded in assembler. So we've discussed assembler before, but to reiterate in a sentence or two, since Assembler is a very low-level programming language, meaning there isn't a lot of abstraction between you know, the hardware layer, the actual computer, and, uh, and the code, it can be very efficient. It's about as close to the hardware as a human programmer can, be- can get without starting to type ones and zeros. In addition, the physics was all done using fixed-point mathematics. Now, I'm no mathematician. In fact, I'm probably the opposite of a mathematician because I'm pretty bad at math. But it's my understanding that fixed-point operations were much faster for uh, CPUs of the time to perform over more complex floating-point operations. I believe the 486 was the first processor to include a separate math coprocessor, or floating-point unit, which could offload heavier floating-point calculations from the CPU itself. Now, since this coprocessor didn't exist fixed-point math was much quicker to execute. Also, since space was at a premium, the graphics had to be pretty rudimentary. Kamer could only use around 570k of RAM at any given time, and this limited him to 30 polygons on a single frame. It's amazing they could manage this and still make the speedway look like the speedway and cars look like cars. So the game released in 1989 to uh, amazing critical and fan acclaim. Now The realism was nothing like anyone had ever seen. Indianapolis 500 The Simulation was quickly considered the first and only true racing simulator. In fact, some of the advertising told people who uh, just wanted to have fun to stick to OutRun. This game forced you to think about your car, think about its settings, think about the track, acceleration, braking, and taking a proper racing line through the course. This wasn't a press-on-the-gas-and-barrel-through-your-opponents kind of racer. It was different, and it was better. The core engine of Indianapolis 500 would go on to further uh, power uh, later Papyrus games, and uh, they would, of course, go on to become a leader in auto racing simulations. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So what does the future hold for Indy 500? Well nothing specific in new development as far as I could tell. However, if you do want some David Kamer based racing action, you can head over to iRacing.com. Now this online racing sim service has been up and running since 2008. For 12 bucks a month, you get what they call the most realistic racer ever designed for a PC. Now I haven't tried it myself, but I watched a few videos and uh, some people have these very, very impressive triple monitor setups with steering wheels and displays and all that stuff. And, uh, Behind all that, the game looked damned nice and it looked like it controlled very well. So, you know, I may I may give this a whirl since uh I haven't been around to having a racing game for a while. So where can we get our hands on Indy 500 today? Well, again, as far as I can see, nowhere legally. However, further to the last show and uh, the beginning of this show, later in its life, Papyrus was bought out by Sierra. And uh, that means it's quite possible As BJ said, I believe in his email, that Activision and uh, the newly restored Sierra brand still own the rights to this game. So if they do, hey, maybe we'll see it revived. All right, so since this is an email-heavy show, why not do two more that have more to do with Indy 500 and less to do with uh, the Sierra revival? So first, we have an email from Brano, and he writes, Hey, Joe. Firstly, big thank you for making such a great podcast. You're doing a wonderful job, and I always look forward to every episode. Now, straight to what I wanted to write about Indy 500. I've actually played it just a few months ago, and even though the game is really graphically dated, it still has an amazing feel to it and is very playable. It's on a completely different level considering its physics model if we compare it to other racing games of the time, like Grand Prix Circuit or Test Drive. When I was a kid, I never really much understood half of the stuff about various settings in the game, so I just screwed around. I was able to finish 10-lap races because it was the only mode where the car was indestructible. I wasn't the most patient player, and I always had uh, destroyed tires. But even after the days of playing, I was still not able to win the race. Then I have discovered the best feature of the game. Immediately after the race started, I turned around and went the wrong way, eliminating all opponents one by one until there was nobody in working conditions on the track except me. At that point, I uh, just nonchalantly went for the victory passing cars that I've crashed. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who was winning races this way. As to the whole Sierra news, thanks for asking for opinions on the Facebook page. I was in the middle of writing a little rant on my blog about it, and it kind of pushed me to finish it. You can read it at the link below, and he has it at dosgamesblog.com. I will, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes there. But the short version is that I'm very cautious about it. Possibilities appear almost endless, but I'm worried that Activision didn't really give a damn about Sierra for years, and now all of a sudden they want to create a whole brand of indie games coming out of it. I'm also a bit afraid that the Sierra games we loved were created by people who are scattered around and will not be involved in this at all. It also appears a bit half-baked, because it is not apparent who the target audience is, us old players or new players who prefer indie games. These are two different segments, and Activision must be aware of it. My biggest fear, however, if that experiment will, if this experiment will go wrong, it will become an eternal stain on Sierra's legacy. Anyway, I hope I'm wrong, and there are going to be good titles coming out of this, and I will laugh about my cynicism and lack of faith later. Thanks again for the great work, and uh, I look forward to uh, f- for more episodes. Stay blocking, Brano. Well, thank you, Brano, and uh, you know, as for uh, smashing all the other opponents and uh, and winning the race that way, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure you're not the only one. I feel like if I had played this game uh, when it first came out, that's probably how I would have won the race. I know I definitely did that in some other games. And uh, as for the Sierra stuff, yeah, I guess, like I've said, we're we're going to wait and see. I don't think Activision is going to be... I hope Activision isn't going to be dumb about this. But, um, yeah, time will tell. And next, a little note from Brian. And he writes, I'm not a car guy, so I've always been baffled by pap- 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 Papyrus papyruses. Why can't I say I've been saying it the whole episode P- Papyrus games. I get cross-eyed when I try to think about things like tire temperature, gear ratios, air pressure, and crap like that. Thus my fond memory of Indy 500 is driving backwards around the track and watching polygon fireworks showering everywhere. As I smash every car off the track, 10 cars enter one car leaves. Well, thanks Brian. And, uh, you know, it seems like you and brano are kind of on the same page that, uh, the easiest way to win a race in uh, in an indestructible mode is to just kill everyone. And then, uh, drive around at uh, at your leisure. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, You should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. Alright, so, does Indianapolis 500, the simulation, hold up today? Well, this one is a half yes and a half no. Maybe even three-quarter yes, and one-quarter no. And uh, As I said, I never played this one when it came out. Now, my intro to racing games was much later on with things like Need for Speed, but uh, when I booted up this game, I honestly, you know, 1989, blah, 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 wasn't expecting much, and it actually blew me away. You know, for a game that came out before 1990, this was a next-gen game. You know, the graphics, well, low-polygon are incredibly smooth. From a physics perspective, you can feel your car wanting to pull out of a turn. Uh, changing settings actually matters, from a physics perspective and a gameplay perspective. This feels just as good as a modern racing sim. You know those aspects of the game hold up incredibly well. From the angle of overall gameplay experience, though, there isn't a ton here. You know once you mess around with your settings enough and you do a few races, even a longer one, uh, you know you realize there's very little variety. I guess I'm used to more modern racers where there's career modes, multiple cars, multiple tracks, and tweaks that involve just more than changing your car's settings. You know, I sort of feel like looking at it from today's angle, this is one part of a game, a much bigger game, but the rest of that game is, is locked away from us. So if you don't mind the very focused gameplay, then I'd definitely give this one a go. So that is that for another show. Thanks for all the great comments over the last two episodes. Uh, it's actually getting to the point where, uh, where I'm having to filter some emails out. And uh, I do apologize for that. But uh, the volume has gone way up over the summer, over the past few episodes. And uh, I, I do have to thank everyone for that. It's, it's really, really great to know that uh, people are listening and people are enjoying and all of that. Now, next time. I'll be covering a super fun game. We are going back to Bullfrogland with Theme Hospital. I'm sure I'm going to be hearing uh, a lot of stuff from, uh, from certain people. Uh, so if you are interested in you know telling me that I was wrong about something today, you still feel like talking about Sierra, or you have something to say about Theme Hospital, send email or audio comments to podcast at umdcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at MoyerMultimedia.com. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We got a great little community going over there. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umb show and me personally at twitter.com slash Billybob476. You can find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umb cast and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash umbcast where I put up videos of my game research sessions. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to uh, pop one up for uh for nd 500, but I will definitely be streaming some uh some theme hospital in the upcoming uh two weeks so as always subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio leave me some five star reviews i love them very much if you think i deserve them Uh, so that is that and we will see you next time for theme hospital here in the upper memory block battle control terminated You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastrianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join.